Welcome to the Dr. April Jasper Show, relevant conversations for business owners of today. I want to change gears a little bit because what Dr. Lou has done in the clinic here is she has established some really amazing protocols and we won't necessarily go through all of that and what you do with a myopic Mm -hmm. patient when they come in. But let's talk about some of the things that we should be thinking about in our offices. So now you have a a patient that was referred by another Mm -hmm. patient. They come in, let's take a six year old who is a minus two. As an example, what is the first thing you're going to do in the clinic? And then how are you going to manage that process for the next upcoming years? So um, we're mostly talking about um, the most important things. We want to communicate with parents almost like as the first time they're coming in for a consultation. Yeah, so there are objective and subjective factors uh, we really need to discuss. But obviously, to make this conversation as custom tailored, we would need to do a very comprehensive uh, pretest to establish a good baseline. By good baseline, we need to understand how the kid is using um, his or her eyes. And uh, what's the for a lot of near activity? What is the relative composition between reading physical books and playing playing Legos or other toys versus computer games and doing a lot of social networking on iPads or cell phones? And to get a very detailed case history, ocular history, as well as um, like a systemic history of other possible conditions causing myopia, for example, Marfan, Stiglers, or Archers, um, whether this is a syndromic myopia where mm-hmm. this is a standalone problem. Objectively, by getting a good baseline, where well, we need to have a good um, autorefraction. And uh, I know most doctors are saying, oh, autorefraction cannot replace subjective refraction. But um, it's something that we know is the standard of a measuring refraction from all of the clinical studies. So if we want to compare to what we have learned from clinical studies, we need to do it the same way. So um, autorefraction, preferably cycloplegia. Without cycloplegia, it's still better than not having an autorefraction. And optical biometer reading, specifically getting um, information of the axial length and all of the components that contributes to the overall axial length as well as a baseline corneal topography to see whether the kid is a good candidate for any of the contact lens treatments. From there, we can deliver a very custom-tailored conversations talking about the pros and cons of all of the available evidence-based options, their time, parents' time and financial investment, as well as whether each treatment fits um, the best with the patient's lifestyle. We know if this is a treatment that kids cannot be compliant with, it's not going to be a good treatment. So two of the things that doctors tell me all the time that they struggle with, so I poll them uh, at meetings that I go to where I'm speaking, and I have an audience response system, and I say, what are your biggest challenges? What are your roadblocks in myopia control? And they say cost and the conversation with the parents. So how do you suggest they get through those challenges? Let's start with the conversations. Um, I have mentioned the earlier the intervention, the better the accumulative outcome. So to get the intervention initiated early, we need to have the conversation started even earlier. And by the time the kid is already a minus three, that's already a little bit too late in terms of starting the conversation. 
So I would encourage everybody to start the conversation anytime we see an adult, uh, a parent patient, when they're showing any signs of retinal changes, the next conversation should be, do you have children? If you yeah. do, uh, when was the last time you brought them in for an exam? And let us evaluate the risk if they haven't developed myopia, what's their risk? And if they are already myopia, what's their options? And the second would be, for all of the patients coming to get myopia control treatments, I naturally ask parents, do they have younger siblings? And so that um, we're not talking about, you know, providing treatment to this older ch child, but also what we can do to your younger child. And the third is to talk to those parents who um, started like only um, thinking or asking questions about myopia, myopia management, we should really bring their children in for a yeah. good baseline. Even though it's a four-year-old plus one, that's still a very good, important baseline for us to understand what is the axial elongation just as a function of a body getting taller. And without knowing that, we don't actually yeah. know how much of the axial length elongation that's related to the progression of myopia. So then how about cost? How do we deal with that? Yes, so cost certainly is a big consideration. At this point, I don't think we're able to target every patient who's indicated for myopia interventions. So I personally feel like our priority should be those who are ready, motivated, and financially yeah. capable. That's good. And uh, currently, I see this mismatch of the industry partners really trying to improve the disease awareness of myopia. But at the same time, doctors are not really driving their effort in focusing on those who are desperately looking for doctors to start their children in myopia interventions. Yep. And so instead of converting someone who's not motivated, who's not psychologically ready, we should really yeah. try to find those patients who are ready but having difficulty finding a good doctor to work with them. How do we do that? I love that. I, I think it's good advice. And, and I think the one benefit, as we all know, that Dr. Liu might have here is by the time they come into the clinic, they're ready. Mm -hmm. They're probably, your conversion rate from patient coming in to actually moving into some interventional treatment is probably very high. Yeah. But yeah, so I see this very interesting um, uh, disconnect. I've heard a lot of doctors in saying, oh, I really want to start doing myopia management, but I'm having difficulty finding patients. But I also manage a very large group of uh, parents, um, roughly about 1,500 parents. And we have this WeChat group that we constantly educate new treatment, new publications, wow. and, uh, and other things. The number one question parent to ask in that group is, where can I find a doctor who can see my child? Wow. So you can see we have a lot of parents looking for doctors. We have a lot of doctors looking for patients. We just don't know how to match them together. We may need to find a website. You know, it's like a match.com. Right. <laughs> um, so um, that, I think, with the help from our industry partners, we're able to match the resources better with the demand. I love it. Yeah. That'll be great. So you mentioned biometry. So first, let's talk about what people, they hear us say a scan and they hear biometry, two different terms. Talk about why two different terms. And then do you have to have that to do myopia management? 
So um, biometry, I think A-scan is a part of biometry. It's just not an optical biometry. And uh, optical biometry is using laser sources instead of ultrasonic um, sources. So the resolution is much better. And it's, in general, um, non-contact. So it's much more suitable to start younger kids um, without causing too much discomfort. Um, but I don't think you need to have an optical biometer, which is a lot more expensive than an A-scan um, biometer. Um, I know there are several options of a high-frequency A-scan biometers. They're able to give us a resolution of about a 0.05 to 0.1 millimeter uh, detectable difference, which is still much, much better than not measuring kids' axial growth. Now, coming back to this very commonly debated question, do we need to measure kids' axial length? My short answer is yes. I think if we're doing a lot of worth okay uh, for adults for the purpose of myopia correction, I'm just, you know, using these resources to fit some sporadic kid patients, that's probably okay. But once we started claiming ourselves to be the myopia management specialists, especially the majority of the tool as a worth okay, without knowing the exact refractive state of the children, the only way we monitor them for any subtle changes is by looking at the difference of their axial length. So yes, once we have charged the patients at the level as a myopia management specialist, I do believe we need to invest in an optical or um, A-scan biometer. It's almost like you claim yourself as a glaucoma specialist, but not doing OCT. Right. Do you need to be a glaucoma specialist to manage glaucoma patients? No, you can still prescribe drops uh, for them. But once you claim yourself as a specialist in doing that, not doing OCT for glaucoma management is almost considered as not doing axial length for myopia management. I love that. I've never heard it presented that way. So great <laughs> job. And that makes a lot of sense to me. So let's talk about prevention. Now you have a patient that comes in, so it's Mm. the four-year-old who came in because brothers and sisters are all myopic. The four-year-old is emetropic. So what are you gonna do with that patient? So there are certainly behavioral modifications. We really need to encourage this four-year-old to stay outdoor as much as possible. And by as much as possible, I'm not talking about a prolonged session of outdoor break. I'm more talking about very frequent outdoor breaks. And most people interpret outdoor breaks and its protective effect against myopia as a cumulative dosage. This is actually not true. So spending two hours outdoor in one single session is not going to be as effective as doing like a 10, 20 minute sessions. Okay, and good. the more it's delivered right after the near work, the more effective it is able to cancel out the myopia go signals. Wow. No, I haven't heard that either. So that you taught me yeah. something else today. All right. So I asked Maria this before we started recording. I said, I've been in Arizona, I've been in Alaska talking about this. And doctors say to me, but what am I going to tell my parents about their kids and being outdoors when it's cold outside and it's dark or in Arizona when it's hot outside how do we how do we manage that so there are several important things I want to um, mention related to your comment number one um, we've heard about this 2020 rule and uh, this outdoor break Um, kids use to really maximize its benefit in myopia um, protection 
cannot be too short. So 20 okay. seconds of a um, visual break is not sufficient enough to make the eyes realize, oh, I'm in the need for a break. And uh, for this 20 seconds of a distance viewing, it's usually not capable um, to elicit any of the cortical mechanism and to actually um, cancel out the, the harmful um, goal signals. So in order to work as a good, um, like a relaxation or a break to um, minimize the risk of myopia development, it needs to be in the scale of three to five minutes minimally. Now, uh, when you're actually taking a very long outdoor break and you have a saturated effect. So going back to your question, Arizona, Alaska, and uh, it's it's more effective to make the breaks shorter okay. and anywhere in the range of three to five minutes, the shortest, but probably 10 minutes is uh, doable. And to do more of that rather than just staying um, outdoor for a very sustained amount of time. So indoor at the gymnasium isn't as good as outdoor. This the evidence on that is <clears throat> unclear, but we do understand is the outdoor lighting has a very distinctive um, like a difference compared to indoor lighting, both in terms of intensity as well as the spectrum distribution. So even for a very cloudy day, even a raining day outside, it still log scales more um, brighter than indoor lighting. So so far we haven't had any evidence showing the um, like from ecological studies showing the areas tend to have a lot more cloudy days or rainy days, the outdoor break does not uh, seem to be as effective. So from that, we know that outdoor break and the very, very distance viewing across the whole visual field is much more effective than a very large conference room or gymnastics in, uh, happening indoor. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. So I interrupted you and I apologize when we were talking about preventative measures. Mm -hmm. We talked about outdoor time. What about sleep? Yes, so another thing that can disrupt the overall um, eye growth or um, especially the eye growth related to the body's physiological development is related to the disruption of uh, sleep patterns. And so um, there are some animal studies showing uh, when the animals are reared in a very disruptive uh, sleep patterns where on and, uh, and uh, light on versus light off cycle, their amitropization process can be um, um, affected quite significantly. Um, so axial length is a complicated picture that has both a physiological component related to the normal body becoming taller. Another um, layer on top of that is abnormal visual e experience induce abnormal axial elongation. So at this point, we're not seeing um, like for keeping kids awake um, would actually be protective, but uh, from the normal development sake, um, having good sleep patterns would be protective um, to at least a physiological component of axial elongation. So is there an amount of sleep every night or a time you should be in bed by? 
Uh, I don't think we have enough studies of showing okay. yeah, that evidence. But uh, another thing I want to emphasize, we only have 24 hours a day. So the last time you um, like, you know, put in sleep, the more time very likely they're actually doing a lot of your work. Yeah. So um, research, um, it's hard to tease out whether it's because of the lack of sleep or it's just increasing hours of a, um, a near work. So yeah. you brought it up again, you've mentioned it a couple of times, digital devices. Tell us what role they play in all of this. Again, the evidence is not super clear. Number one, because the quantification of a digital device using um, it's has not been very um, ideal. Right. Mostly we're using a subjective questionnaire and sometimes it's the questionnaire from parents. And if I ask any of you <laughs> to estimate how much you have spent on your cell phone versus what your cell phone is telling yep. you how much you have spent on it, we know it's a very poor correlation. So one problem with the evidence on that is we haven't figured out a good way of objectively quantifying how much time kids spend on their uh, phones. Right. And a second problem is very similar to what we have discussed on the outdoor break is that the time spent on digital devices is not linearly accumulative. So a two hour of nonstop use on the cell phone would do a lot more harm than using the same amount of cumulative time, but chopping them down into shorter sessions and interleave with a good break. So um, using a cumulative time of screen is not a sensitive way of understanding its risks. And a third point I want to emphasize is the working distance. In general, uh, electronic devices tend to um, be associated with a much closer working distance. And we know this dioptic stress. So for the same amount of reading, if it's happening at a, like a 40 meter arm length versus a 10 yeah. meter cell phone, its impact on, on myopia development is dramatically different. So yeah. simply um, measuring the accumulative time of a digital device use without looking at how the pattern of its use and uh, without objectively quantifying it, I don't think we're quite there yet in understanding exactly how much risk is inducing both in terms of early onset as well as progression. So I, I know that we have talked a lot about these things, but Maria, you, you're just such a wealth of knowledge. I just need to know. I know people ask me this all the time. How do you decide, patients here, it's time for treatment, which of the options are that are out there without naming names because, well, or you could, this is a podcast, it's open mm -hmm. for a discussion, but how do you decide which treatment is best for which patient? Currently, unfortunately, in terms of the number one factor parents look at is the efficacy. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't... Uh, read anything that clearly shows a one treatment works better than the other treatment, even among the same modality, let's say worth okay. Despite some manufacturers saying um, we have some myopia control optimized design, uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. And so I would not, between multifocal daytime soft lens versus overnight worth okay, certainly the decision to me is not based on the efficacy. It's more on um, the parent's predisposition of the yeah. safety of their treatment, how feasible it is to match the lifestyle of this kid. And so this is yeah. certainly a very multifactorial decision. 
And um, to me, I'm uh, biased toward the optical treatments more so than the um, atropine because yeah. atropine, it's only limited to its myopia controlling effect without a correcting effect. So it still need to be combined with an optical correction versus for both the daytime uh, multifocal lenses versus nighttime ortho K, it's almost like a one stone, uh, two birds situation. Right. And between the two, um, daytime soft lens versus nighttime ortho-K, I am biased toward ortho-K. If I'm seeing a younger patient, a lower myopia, parents can actually take over the lens cleaning and uh, insertion yeah. uh, removal. And versus um, older patients who are more independent in contact lens um, handling and uh, Sometimes outside of the range, I feel very confident to have the best safety and a long-term consistency in ortho-K. I'm biased toward um, daytime soft lenses. So here's a big question for you. If you were me in private practice, how would you address this world of myopia? What would you say to a doctor who's listening? Because we have people that are in practice for 25 years. We have students that are just mm -hmm. getting out and starting their practice. How, how should they be thinking about myopia control, myopia management? What should what would you tell them today? So the number one message I want to send out is that myopia management in the future is going to become the standard of care. Whether you yeah. choose to ignore it or not, nowadays, um, it's eventually it's something that patients and parents yeah. will come ask us. So it's better to keep ourselves informed and up to date in terms of what are the options available out there. And number two, um, early intervention is the key. Yeah. No matter what we do, the earlier we start it, the better the outcome. And number three, uh, there are gonna be more and more modalities available, especially now we hear really promising data from novel spectacles. And so for those doctors who are a little bit uncomfortable feeding kids in soft yeah. lenses, um, we will have some really exciting options for you that doesn't require special um, specialty contact lens training, um, and, but um, we can still do better than simply prescribing single vision glasses. And uh, I know that, well, I've asked you a lot of questions, so let's ask this one first. Is there anything we left out, anything else that you think that people need to hear, questions that you get maybe that I didn't even bring up? No, I think we've done a really good job covering the, okay. the most exciting topics. All right, yeah. so then my final question, everyone wants mm -hmm. to know what's next for Dr. Liu. So I have a very exciting uh, project. I'm starting a new myopia control clinic um, as a private clinic wow. outside of Berkeley. Yay. Yeah. That's going to be so mm -hmm. fun. And it'll be soon, right? Uh, uh, I'm Maybe. hoping so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I'm hoping the clinic will start um, getting ready for patients in late October. Oh, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, currently I have a lot of patients traveling in a average radius of uh, 30, 40 miles, and many wow. of them are coming from the area where I know I can have, wow. um, like I can serve them better. Yeah. And you know, I totally <clears throat> forgot to tell everybody that one of the things that you teach about is also that uh, the comparative studies, see if I got this right, Maria, mm -hmm. on the similarity and difference of primary vision care in developed versus developing countries. So you know more about that than anybody probably that uh, I know. How do you, what would you say about that? And what should we be grateful for, I guess, in, in, in our country? But how is it different in other countries? Are we behind in some ways, ahead of other countries? Where are we at? And what can we do better? 
It's very interesting. So in terms of a primary vision care, we're definitely um, ahead of the most of the developing countries. Taking mainland China as an example, there is no such thing as primary vision care because all of the vision care is cash pay. And there is no insurance cover, general eye exams. So it relies on much better disease awareness from parents to bring their kids in for early mm-hmm. baseline, um, on especially like establishing the optical um, octal growth file profiles. Wow. Yeah. And so from that, our insurance system, it's so comprehensive. The majority of the comprehensive eye exam can be covered. And so that's really giving us no excuse of not detecting myopia earlier. Yep. Even that um, myopia as a disease has much better awareness in China. It has been recognized as a disease like uh, hundreds of years uh, ago. So when you have a Chinese family coming in, um, talking about during the consultation, it's not so much about convincing them to engage in a treatment. It's just a matter of what treatments to consider and why. And versus when I I talk about a non-Asian family, I still need to spend a lot of time educating them why myopia needs to be controlled. Right. Yeah. So a lot of uh, conversations on the risk of retinal complications, et cetera, et cetera. And um, let me just give you a very uh, funny example as the ending of this conversation. I have this uh, turning five-year-old boy um, not speaking much English. During the consultation, I did the auto-refraction on this kid. This kid replied to me in Chinese in saying, how much is my hypropic buffer? Oh my goodness. That's incredible. Were you shocked or is this something that happens? I've had similar experience before, but not from a four-year-old. Oh my goodness. But um, uh, I just want to remind you, myopia management has a huge cultural difference. Some parents are coming in really, really prepared. Another extreme example I had was a parent asking me how much of the spherical aberration you're inducing from the ortho-K treatment to my child. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm not even sure what I would say. So I'm glad they're seeing you, Maria. <laughs> yeah, so um, huge cultural difference in terms of uh, their what they perceive as the first choice for their kid for myopia right. um, interventions. Yeah. Well, I just I think everybody knows this, but I want to say it again. I have been passionate about myopia since the day I realized what myopia was. I remember as a little girl looking for my dad's RGP contact lenses on the ground when one would pop out of his eye. And then as a young optometrist saying, I hope one day I can do something to prevent this. So I'm all about this. And I just want you to know as our final, you know, conversation piece, how much I appreciate and I know everyone listening appreciates the research you're doing. The, the, the information you bring to us and providing us with the ability to change our patients' lives. So thank you so much, Maria. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to this very, very exciting podcast series. Thank you. Mm-hmm. If you suffer from dry, scratchy, irritated eyes, the problem may actually stem from your eyelids. Cleansing eyelids daily is essential for maintaining healthy eyes which is why doctors recommend OcuSoft Lid Scrub Allergy Eyelid Cleanser. New OcuSoft Lid Scrub Allergy removes oil, pollen, and other contaminants from your eyelids to effectively reduce redness, irritation, and itching caused by seasonal allergies. These pre-moistened wipes are easy to use, on the go, or at home. Simply wipe and leave on. 
As the industry standard of care, OcuSoft has a full line of eyelid cleansers for various conditions. Available through eye care professionals, most retail outlets, and Amazon.com. Visit OcuSoft.com for more details.